Welcome to On the Soul's Terms, a podcast exploring psychology, astrology, and mythology. This morning, a client and I were walking through a dreamscape. The setting was a decrepit building in rubble in an unknown city. As she was walking through this empty space that had overtones of the end of the world, she was met by a woman with long black hair and dark eyes. She said her name was Cynthia. As they looked around the rubble, they saw evidence of old festivals now covered in dust. Festivals no longer honoured. We talked about the name Cynthia and discovered that its roots go back to Mount Synthus, where the lunar goddess Artemis was born. Her name also has associations with Selena, the nighttime equivalent of Helios, who would drive her silver chariot through the sky carrying the moon. This led us into some notes that I had open in a notebook nearby, notes taken while listening to Brian Clark talking about the moon. He had mentioned the Egyptian lunar calendar, a calendar used solely for keeping track of the right time for different festivals scattered throughout the year. The solar calendar slowly drifted away from the lunar calendar over time. Eventually, the decision was made to scrap the lunar calendar to proceed just with the solar one. Perhaps this was just for simplicity's sake. Perhaps the continuing of the lunar calendar felt arbitrary and no longer aligned with the times. Perhaps it was the patriarchy crushing feminine values. Perhaps it was a natural evolution of consciousness towards the solar principles. You'll find arguments of each of these scattered around the internet. Whatever it was, the lunar calendar drifted out of use in society at large. We imagine it has probably continued to be used up until this day, but by smaller and smaller sections of the population and away from the solar light of the collective consciousness. In losing the lunar calendar, we lost track of these sacred festivals and their link to renewing our imaginal reverence for an element of reality that can't be felt in the light of the scorching sun. My client is beginning to explore the night world. She's staying up late, sometimes until daybreak, painting, writing, moving. Sometimes she's wandering around the streets under the moonlight, conversing with plants and trees in her neighborhood being swept up in the night. Her solar consciousness questions why she does this, tells her she should get a full night of sleep so that she can be productive in the daytime. Her lunar consciousness is gaining ground over logic like this, drawing her beyond this sensible self into the magic of the night. Her dream is personal. Cynthia is a figure in her own consciousness. But the fact that without her conscious knowing her name links back to the lunar goddesses of ancient Greece, makes me think this figure is collective too, coming through my client with a message for us all. Her tears when looking at the dust collecting on the grounds of ancient festivals is something that, if we slow down and take note, we can most likely all feel on some level. I bring in this dream today because the feeling tone of it can be felt within the astrological axis of Virgo Pisces. Many years ago, I attended a 10-day workshop in Bali with the astrologers Rick Levine and the late Jeff Jawa. 
They suggested a theory within astrology that instead of 12 signs of the zodiac, there were in fact six. Six different expressions of wholeness. In order to understand each sign, though, they had to be split into two opposite forces. The final of these six is Virgo Pisces. On the Pisces side of this axis is the dreaming world, the imaginal landscapes, the oceanic level of reality. On the Virgo side is the earthly realm. It's the rituals and routines of everyday life. Pisces is the ocean. Virgo is the wave. Pisces the forest. Virgo the trees. Cinderella, the maiden and youngest daughter, has to separate out the good and bad lentils from a big pile of them on the floor in order to meet the requirements of her stepmother and get to the festival to meet the prince. Psyche, also the youngest daughter, must separate out a mountain of seeds into their separate and distinct piles thrown down by her mother-in-law-to-be, Aphrodite. These are Virgo tasks. Each maiden feels defeated by the enormity of the task. That's the dizzying magnitude of Pisces consciousness. We can imagine the modern-day heroic mindset when set tasks such as these roll up the sleeves and get busy, work at it for as long as it takes. This isn't the approach of either of these maidens. Instead, they are wise enough to understand that the task that has been set is impossible. Each one sits down and begins to weep. Birds come to help Cinderella. Ants come to the aid of Psyche. These creatures of the earth accomplish the tasks easily and with no stress, while the maiden re relaxes nearby. In mythic language, this is a return to the instincts, to our own nature, a connection to the deep self, the steady mind, the wisdom within our inner animal consciousness. Notice when I say animal consciousness, what comes up for you? Have you been taught that we need to overcome our animal self? Have you been indoctrinated into the myth of the hero, that we must rely solely on our own brilliance and savvy in order to overcome the challenges set to us in our lives? These old tales give us a different glimpse, and they come through the realm of Virgoan consciousness. So what of Pisces? Where does the oceanic final sign of the zodiac fit into this equation? Pisces, opposite Virgo, is the image of two fish swimming in different directions, yet connected forever by an umbilical cord. It represents our desire to transcend the troubles of everyday life and merge with the oceanic unity consciousness. The two fish from the constellation are Aphrodite and Eros, who have transformed themselves into fish in order to escape the dreadful monster Typhon. They are connected to each other so that they don't lose each other in the chaos of the deep sea. Aphrodite is the mother of Eros, and yet Eros is also considered to be one of the primordial amorphous forces at the beginning of time. As Jason Holly points out, the other two water signs of Cancer and Scorpio have their own shells to protect them, making them suitable for living on land. The fish, however, can't survive there. On land, the fish flails around gasping to take a watery breath. The same can be said for Pisces in its most pure archetypal form. It's in this world, but not of it. And so, in order for the oceanic to find its way into the earth realm, it needs to make a connection to its opposite energy. 
When exploring these oppositions, first we see their tension with each other, then we can move into the heart of the polarity, but finally we can move into the realm of paradox, the fact that one couldn't exist without the other, and that it's often by leaning one way that we find ourselves in touch with the other. Cinderella and Psyche move into the Piscean realm of giving up, not in the sense of resigning, more in the sense of giving the problem to a higher or lower consciousness. Within this realm of paradox, we can see that without Virgo's ability to build the temple in the physical world, to plan the festival, to put aside the time, to prepare the ground, the gods and goddesses in the primordial super Pisces simply have no arena in which to be honoured and brought into our everyday lives as real living beings, albeit imaginal. In my client's dream, she looks at the dust and rubble that covers these old festivals. We both feel the loss. We both sense that something signified in this dream is deeply relevant to both of our lives and the lives of the collective. We don't know exactly what it is, but the feeling takes us into contact with it. And here we are, ourselves beginning to move into the energy of the Pisces full moon. Perhaps a Piscean story will help us to sense a little more deeply the feeling of this longing that lurks deep in our collective unconscious, whether we're aware of it or not. It's the story of Eurydike and Orpheus. Eurydike was a wood nymph, therefore connected to the spirit of the forest, and had fallen deeply in love with the poet and musician Orpheus. On the day of their union, Hymen, the god of marriage feasts, was in attendance, but the torch in his hand wouldn't ignite, instead spreading smoke into the eyes of those who attended, bringing tears. It was a bad omen for sure, but none of them could have imagined what would happen on that fateful day. Eurydike, while wandering through the garden groves with her attendees, mistakenly stepped upon a viper, who bit her ankle and killed her instantly. Instead of standing in loving adoration on the altar of her marriage, she was with Charon the ferryman, moving across the river Styx on her way to the underworld. Orpheus's grief was unbearable, and he poured it into his music. Soon this music captured the attention of even the gods themselves, who felt the pain of this mortal man in his suffering. Once he had sung to the heavens above, he turned his attention to the lands below, and was moved to enter the underworld with nothing but his song to guide the way, in a desperate attempt to bring back his wife-to-be. Cerberus, the three-headed dog who guards the underworld passage, was lulled to sleep by the music. Charon, the ferryman, waved his usual fee of a golden coin, so long as Orpheus would play for them as they crossed the dark, still waters. And when he came into contact with Hades and Persephone, the king and queen of the underworld, they were more than happy to hear him out so long as they could relish in the beauty of his music. He assured them, firstly, that he wasn't here to look around or to steal the dog Cerberus as Hercules had done long ago. He assured them that he understood that his fate, like all other living souls, was to eventually return to their place in the underworld. But he pleaded with them to hear him out, that Eurydike was taken too soon, in the prime of her life, in the peak of her love. He asked only that she be released back to him as a loan from the mighty Hades and Persephone, that would be returned when her time in the upper world was truly complete. 
Whilst he sang his song, the whole of the underworld was transfixed. It's said that Sisyphus stopped rolling his boulder up the hill and sat and rested on it, that Tantalus stopped reaching for the fresh water and fruits to take in the sound, that the wheel of Ixion stopped in its tracks. The sweet, soulful sounds were heard and received by all, and so Persephone, in a rare moment of mercy, agreed to release his beloved back into the light of the upper world once more, under one condition. Until they have both passed the threshold into the upper world, Orpheus must agree to not look back, to fix his gaze forward. If he can do this, Eurydice will be his once more. And so the lovers made their way up through the winding path. Again, Charon was happy to let them ride for the price of music, and again, Cerberus was lulled to sleep. As Orpheus crossed the threshold, a sudden doubt crossed his mind. Is she truly there? He was so close now, himself already in the upper world. It couldn't hurt to take a peek to make sure she has followed him. He turned around, but Eurydice had not yet crossed over the threshold. She reached her hand out for him, and he for hers, but she drifted backwards, back to the land of the dead. The last Orpheus heard was her voice that said a gentle farewell, and she was gone. In his grief, Orpheus turned away from food and drink and focused solely on pouring himself into his music. From him and his songs, the Orphic mysteries were formed that had ties with the god of wine Dionysus. This was in much the same way that the story of Demeter and Persephone gave rise to the Eleusinian mysteries, where initiates would face their own death over the span of a nine-day ritual. These are stories from the night world. They're not designed to help us become better versions of ourselves, to be more proficient in our work, to be the heroes of our own story. Far from it. In fact, these stories invite us into the oceanic realm, to dwell there to allow our minds to drift and dream in deep spaces far away from the speedy back-and-forth surface world consciousness. Perhaps when Orpheus loses Eurydice, we also lose touch with the world of lunar consciousness. It makes me wonder if it's not Eurydice that my client meets there in the rubble of lost rituals, as well as Artemis, Selena, and all the other lunar goddesses that have fallen out of our collective conscious awareness. And yet... As Jung points out with his work on the collective unconscious, these figures are and forever will be a part of our basic psychic makeup. When we stop celebrating their rituals, they don't go away. They just become more Typhon than Aphrodite Eros. Mother Nature becomes angry as we move beyond our natural limits. If nothing else, these ancient mystery traditions told us how to live in harmony with nature. Now, we seem to have to move forward without them. It makes me wonder, how might we return to the underworld, playing our sweet song of lament, to bring back the spirit of the forest to come and join us again in our participation with the mystery of life? And if Persephone was to let her come with us, how might we not look back, but rather forward with the knowledge that she's there with us, willing to help us to renew the earth and bring her back to life? Virgo rules over our structures, our plans, our systems, our ways of working with the earth that we're entangled in. It helps us to separate the wheat from the chaff, 
and to put things in their right place. It teaches us of our limits and the best ways for us to be existing in harmony with the rest of the species on this planet. It's very earthy, grounded and practical energy. And yet it's forever connected to those two fish of which it opposes. A coherent mythology and cosmology will be an essential element of any attempt to deeply heal the planet. The dreaming mind will need to be employed alongside the scientific one to bring about a change deep enough to bring us through these chaotic times. It's now two and a half years since that Virgo full moon of March 2020 when the Piscean shit hit the Virgo fan and the typhon of corona was unleashed upon the world. Like this full moon, the planet Neptune was connected to that moon. And I remember, amongst the chaos, an idealism that perhaps this world event would have the impact of bringing us all together, to have us remember that we're all connected to the source. Chaos, idealism, and source are all Neptunian principles. The reality, however, seemed to be far more separation than connection. As the mighty Typhon raged on, we were all swept up in polarizing madness on all ends. Many escaped into the ocean, playing Eros Aphrodite, swimming deeper and deeper to find a place of safety. Many more still remained in the upper world to fight Typhon and engage in the Battle of the Titans. In the myth, it's Kronos versus Zeus. Kronos, who wants to eat his children rather than let them be free. Zeus, who stands for freedom, liberty, expansion, but also limitlessness and idealism. We all got pushed around by algorithms into echo chambers, simplifying the complex and complexifying the simple. We were convinced that we were right and they were wrong, or we were wrong and they were right, sometimes cycling through this Neptunian chaos several times a day. As Typhon now settles down and we come up from the sea, we see a pile of seeds scattered on the ground. There is work to be done to sort through this. Perhaps apologies to be made, discussions to be had outside of the amplifications of Neptunian emotion. They say that time heals all wounds, but we know from Virgo's new ruler, some say, Chiron, that that's not always true. Chiron's wound is from his own student Hercules, whose stray arrow dipped in the blood of the monstrous Hydra, a relative of Typhon, has accidentally wounded him in a way that won't ever heal. The wound has amplified Chiron's inner split, the split we all carry, of his animal and human halves. The split of nature and civilization, the split of mind and matter. How might we follow Pisces now back into the ocean, back into the understanding that we are one, back into Aphrodite Eros, both symbols of love, to reconnect, to sift through the mess, and to dream together of a future that is connected back to the deep past, yet take heed of Persephone's wisdom, and feel her there, but not look back. Sounds simple enough, right? This paradoxical Pisces moon wouldn't have it any other way. Thanks for listening to On the Soul's Terms. 
Find us online at onthesoulsterms.com and on Instagram at onthesoulsterms. This podcast is produced in Vancouver, British Columbia, which we would like to acknowledge is on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, and Musqueam. Tune in next time for more of the wisdom of stories, approaching what the ancients knew on the Soul's Terms.